Um, we are in 2 Corinthians 5. So if you would turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our fourth week in chapter 5, but chapter 5 is just so worth it. So we've been going slow through this section. Uh, let me kind of just catch you up to speed. Paul in the, in the book of Corinthians is really trying to address several things, but the primary thing we're seeing in this chapter is Paul wants to see the Corinthians develop a heavenly mindset. He wants to see them live for eternity. He wants them to live for the things that are unseen, not for the things that are seen. And so as we walk through this chapter, we talked about how one day we'll have a new body in heaven. We talked about our heavenly home. We talked about judgment day. Uh, last week, we talked about in light of judgment day, Paul describes a new way to live. We have new motives, new perspectives, a new identity. We are a new creation in Christ. Now, Paul explains how we got there. We're going to look at verse 18 to 21, and Paul's going to show us how we got to this new identity in Christ. I mean, this to me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21, is some of the most theologically rich scripture there is in the Bible. Um, I, I love it. I mean, you could say we're called, and you cannot say we are called the exchange because of this section because of just the great exchange. This is what Charles Spurgeon calls the great exchange. John Calvin calls this the wonderful exchange. Um, a pastor friend of mine, John Corson, called this the great switcheroo. This just to me is the, is the, the gospel, the gospel nutshell. And people are like, why are you called the exchange? We get that question. We're like, well, this is the one word that just summarizes what God did for us. He exchanged my sin for his salvation my filth for his righteousness. And so this is the great exchange. Um, in this text, just so you kind of know, there really is some rich concepts. We're going to see something called imputation, reconciliation, substitution. I mean, very just rich theological truths that what it should do is not just be information, but it should lead to praise. Uh, one of my favorite doctrines, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to share it with you guys, is this idea or this word or this doctrine called penal substitutionary atonement. And you're like, that just sounds like a silly word. No, uh, usually all big doctrines have a big word or a big phrase, and it's usually a simple meaning. Penal, that word penal, everyone just say penal. Penal, yeah, there you go, welcome to church. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Penal is this word penalty. There's a penalty for sin. When you hear the word penal, think penalty. The wages of sin is death. There's a penalty for our sin. Substitutionary is this idea of a substitute, that Jesus took my place, and in turn, I get his place. What a beautiful message. And then atonement. The atonement was talked about throughout the Bible, but it's this a covering or even this removal of sin. So there's a penalty for sin, but guess what? We have a substitute who atoned for our sin. And, and here's the idea why I even just want to share this as we kind of jump into the text. Um, I think any time you study scripture, there should be really rich theology that leads to something called doxology. Theology just means the study of God. Doxology is the expression of that belief. Doxology turns into praise. Doxology is worship. You see, what I believe about God must come out eventually through worship, through song. If you and I truly do believe these things about God, that God actually came to earth, lived a sinless life, took my sin, my filth, my junk, and gave me his righteous and perfect life. That theology, that truth should lead to something called doxology. It should lead to praise, the expression of praise. Just like, God, I have to show you with my mouth, my lifestyle, my actions, my words, my heart. I want everything to reflect you. And so again, I'm saying this because we don't want to just be a church that has good theology or good doxology. We want both. I love when churches have great theology, and I love when churches have great worship and doxology. We want to be a church that embodies both. Amen? 
We want to have rich theology and rich doxology. And so here's what I'm going to share again. We're going to read this. And in some ways, this is one of those texts, I feel like no matter what I do or say, I cannot do justice to it. This is one of those passages I just hope you can go home and sit with it a little bit longer. I hope you can enjoy it. I hope that you can realize this is why we call it good news. It's something God has done for us. We just sit back and receive it. And it's kind of overwhelming because I feel like I just want Jesus and the Holy Spirit to show up and to really help this be more than a Bible study. Um, I hope this is something that we can truly worship God, thank God for. Again, the great exchange, the wonderful exchange, the great switcheroo is because of this passage right here, because of what we see that Jesus did for us. So why don't we just read it? Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verse 18 through 21. I can't honestly, I honestly can't think of a better message for the 4th of July because there's nothing more freeing uh, than this truth. Verse 18, Paul says, all this is from God. All this what? We'll, we'll go back. Don't worry. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, in light of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become or that we might have the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ in us. I just want to pray and ask God to really kind of ingrain this into our hearts um, on this 4th of July, that this truth would set us free more than anything else could. So why don't we just do that? Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is incredibly true what you've done. That God, you took our filth, our shame, our guilt, our sin, everything that we've done or everything even others have done to us. And that Jesus, you took that on the cross. You stood there in our place. You died for us. You rose again. God, we ask that this would not just be words that we've heard or the gospel that we've heard maybe so often, but let it be new. Let it be fresh. Let it be something, God, you just do differently in our hearts. And uh, Jesus, we just thank you. We ask that you just be present, that you'd lead this conversation and this time in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, growing up, like many kids, I used to love to trade things. I mean, you can think about anything, but like for me, it's my lunch. I would trade like something in my lunch with another kid. Uh, being a 90s kid, we used to trade something all the time called, and you guys know, but Pokemon cards. We used to trade these all the time with each other. A lot of times when I was younger, I'd get taken advantage of, and I hated that when like I'd give away my Charizard for something else. Like, oh. right now, those things are like priceless, by the way. I literally called my parents last month. I'm like, please tell me if you have my Pokemon cards. And they're like, no, we threw them away. I'm like, oh, someone's a millionaire now. Like, it's crazy. Um, uh, we used to trade those all the times. Also, just being a 90s kid, we used to have something. I used to love these. Personally, love these. We had pogs. I don't know if you guys know what pogs are. Pogs are the greatest thing in the world. Just basically cardboard, right? You had something called like a slammer, and you play someone, you like slam it, and the pog like flipped over. Like, I got your pog. It was, I don't know. It sounds so lame when I explain it, but it's awesome. Um, pogs are so fun. They're different designs all over them. Did anyone have pogs, by the way? Come on. 
Pogs were fun. I remember they actually got banned at our school because kids were like losing their pogs and it was bad. They banned Pokemon cards. They banned pogs. It was awful. Uh, but trading was fun. Like exchanging something was incredibly fun. For my buddy's uh, 16th birthday, and, and when I say it, it almost sounds like a, definitely sounds like a Christian kid birthday, but it wasn't. It was really cool. Um, we used to, we'd go to his house for, we'd go, we went to his house for his birthday and he did something called like the, tr- uh, the paperclip trade game. I don't know if you guys have heard this or know this, but he basically, like if there's like 20 of us at his house, he broke us into like four or five groups and they gave us a paperclip and the objective was like we had two hours to go door to door trying to trade a, ch- a, cl- a paperclip for something better and then take that thing and trade it for something better and we kept trading and trades. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but it was actually really fun. So we all had a paperclip and we had like two hours and I can't remember exactly like the dynamic of like how many trades we made, but when you knocked on someone's door, it was, it was weird for them and us. We're like, hi, I have a paperclip. Is there anything better than a paperclip you'd give me for this? And they're like, who are you? What? Like, it's a birthday party. We're just weird. Like, and we would just like trade the paperclip. I, I remember we end up with like a nice, like a nice little speed bike. Like somehow we had like a speed bike. We thought like, and the best, the best group wait, would win. I remember my buddy, his birthday, like that guy for his birthday, he came back with like a double decker washer and dryer. Like they're like pushing it in the red wagon, this double decker. I'm like, and you're, you just look at it and you're like, how did, like how? Like how did you get there? Like how did it end up that way? I have no idea how that happened. Actually, this got really well known like around 2007. Uh, this guy named Kyle McDonald, he actually ends up doing some TED Talks about this, but he actually was well known for this red paperclip challenge. And I think it's in 2007, he had a red paperclip. He traded it up to, I think it's four. 14 times. He made up to 14 trades, and he ended up with this house behind him. He started off with a red paper clip, and with 14 trades, and you can like read on like Wikipedia or whatever, these 14 trades he made it to end up with this house, right? Genius! I know all of you guys are going to do this now. Um, and I love this idea of like trading in something for something better. Now, here's the idea. Obviously, when you trade something and you had to offer something, like you can't just fully be garbage, maybe like not the best stuff, but you had to offer something. You see, the gospel honestly is summarized in this way that we didn't trade God something a little bit valuable. Like we traded God something incredibly worth nothing, like just absolutely meaningless. We say, God, here's my sin. Here's my filth. Here's my life. And God goes, well, here's my righteousness. Here's heaven here's eternal life. Like, you can't even trade up for it. You go, I really have nothing to offer in this moment. I actually love how Isaiah says it. Isaiah in 61, he says, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. He gives us beauty for ashes. Another translation, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I just love that there's this theme in the Bible of God, here's my ashes, and God goes, well, here's my beauty. Like God's like, give me what you have, whatever it is. I love that, whatever it is. You might not feel like you have a lot to offer. God's like, great. Like, I don't want anything from you. Give me your ashes, I'll give you my beauty. Give me your mourning, I'll give you my joy. There is this great exchange that just constantly takes place. Sometimes in scriptures, we see it in a negative way. We see the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau, who exchanged his birthright for just a pot of stew. He exchanged something incredible for something meaningless. Sometimes you see it the opposite way. Jesus even asked it in a question. He said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? So, so often we think like, no one, like I would give nothing. But so often we sell our our soul short. Like, we exchange our soul for just a moment, for some pleasurable experience, some fleeting moment. 
And we think, well, Jesus, I would not give my soul for anything. And he goes, no, it happens actually more than you think. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? And here's what we see. We see it in this positive light with Jesus and with the gospel. He's like, I'm going to give you my life for your life. I'm going to exchange my life, who I am, what I've done, my righteousness. I'm going to robe you in that. You're going to give me your filth and junk. I'm going to robe you in my righteousness. See, this honestly was the message that changed my life. And I want to get into this. We'll jump into the text more. But I mean, being growing up in the church and kind of being like, okay, yes, I heard the gospel before. The idea of substitution was absolutely life-changing for me. Because the gospel so often was, don't do this or do this. And it just felt incredibly overwhelming. And when you understand the gospel of Jesus, it's not about what you don't do or about what you do, but about what Jesus did, and he is your substitute, and he takes your place, and it's by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, that gospel message is truly so freeing, because it's exhausting trying to stop doing things you can't stop doing to begin with. It's exhausting trying to do things that you feel like, I can never do this on a consistent basis. When you realize the gospel is about this great exchange, It gives you a new identity. It gives you new power. It gives you a new way of doing life like you couldn't before. That's why Paul says, hey, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All of these things have passed away. God has made all things new. And now he tells us how he did this through this ministry of reconciliation. So as we walk through just verse 18 to 21, I want you to see these. I'm going to break it down uh, into three points, and we're going to kind of walk through this text. So here we're going to see our ministry, our mission, and our message. Our ministry our mission, and our message. Our ministry would be in verse 18 to 19. This is the ministry God has given us. Let's look at verse 18. What is this ministry? Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message, verse 21, the message of reconciliation. So, first of all, our ministry, this ministry of reconciliation. Now, let's just kind of back up uh, and break it down. Verse 18, he says, all of this is from God. What is all of this? He's obviously looking at the, the text as a whole, and he's saying, hey, there's a new way to live. You have new motives. You have new perspective. You have new identity. He's like, all of this, everything new, everything good in your life, all of this is from God. Anything good in your life is from God. God. I mean, just that truth and letting it like, sink in a little bit. Like, every good and perfect gift comes from above. He goes, all of this, all of this, everything we've talked about so far, It's from him. Don't forget who it comes from. And then I want to point out, he obviously describes reconciliation over and over again. Look at verse 18 again. He says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. I mean, over and over, it's reconciled, reconciliation. God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? To like put it simply, uh, reconcile means restoration to favor from enemy to friend. And the way it's actually used in the Greek is it's used in two different terms. It means you're restored to favor again. If you've fallen out of good favor with someone, reconciled means, no, no, that, that favor you fell out of, you have good favor again. I love this because the Bible uses that word favor. It's so often in the Greek, it's this word charis or grace. And so you're restored to grace. By grace, we're restored to grace. And I love you're restored to favor. And then from an enemy to a friend. And I want that to like kind of sink in again. Think about that. The gospel is you and I were once an enemy of God, and God has made us friends. Not that God was our enemy, but that we were enemies of God. 
He says, you're restored. You're once at odds or at war with God, and now you're a friend of God. Actually, James says this, Paul says this, but James 4.4, James writes, uh, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. If you want to be a friend of the world, he goes, you make yourself an enemy of God. The Bible uses this kind of language that at one point in time, we were enemies of God. Not that he was ours, but we made ourselves enemies of God. Actually, Paul put it a little bit further. Paul in Romans 8 verse 7 says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Like our flesh, our just natural, like by birth, where it constantly says hostile toward God. Like that's just who we are. We're at odds with God. I want my way. God has his way. And the Bible would use this language that you're an enemy. You're separated from God. And then here's the idea, though. But God has reconciled us. God has turned us from an enemy to a friend. Very thankful for that. Just for the truth that we can be called a friend of God. He goes, you're not my enemy. You might make yourself an enemy, but you're not my enemy. Paul in Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just make this clear. God desires to have this friendship, but God desires it. Um, God didn't need to be reconciled to us. We needed to be reconciled to God. And it's crazy that God isn't the one who's in pursuit of reconciliation. God, you could say, like, does he need us? But he pursues us. Like, we need him. We need to be reconciled to him. I just love this thought in the scriptures. Just read from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. God is in this constant pursuit of man. As soon as Adam just disobeys God, he goes, Adam, where are you? And God is like walking, looking for Adam. The idea is that God is like, you're not looking for me, I'm looking for you. And I really want you to get this as we kind of come to church so often. Sometimes you think we're looking for God, I'm looking for God. In reality, God's like, hey, where are you? I'm looking for you. That we've been justified by the blood of Jesus. God is in pursuit of us. I mean, this couldn't be more clear than the story of Hosea. If you guys know the story of Hosea, I'll just summarize it briefly. But the whole book of Hosea is kind of summarized in this way where God's like, hey, Hosea, you're going to marry this woman named Gomer. And really, she's going to reflect my love for Israel. Gomer is this woman who gets kind of like saved or married out of like prostitution, and she has two, three kids with Hosea. Eventually, she sells herself over to prostitution. She sells herself over to a man, and God says, Hosea, I want you to go and buy back your wife. Like, I know she's yours, but I want you to go, and I want you to buy back your wife. And here's what it says in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn their gods. God's like, I want you to pursue and love the way I love my people. God is in this constant pursuit of us. God tries to throw it, to show us through just constant illustration saying, hey, even if you leave me, even if you sell yourself to another, I'm going to pursue you. See, God has reconciled us. God has reconciled. God has says, no, no, you're an enemy. I want to make you a friend. There is this constant pursuit of God and of, of us in the scriptures. And I love that. Just, you know, that God's pursuing you. Before we like even just keep moving, Again, whatever brings you here at this moment, this day, that there is a God in heaven who loves you so deeply, he's in constant pursuit of you. Even remember, Paul's writing to Christians, Paul's writing to believers. And I think Christians, we need to hear this as well. 
that God is still pursuing you. God is still that faithful husband. I love 2 Timothy 2.13, that God is faithful even when we are faithless. He cannot deny himself. That's just who God is. God is just faithful. He cannot deny that about him. He's just faithful even when we're faithless. That God is in this constant pursuit of you and me. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Because my heart is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And God is constantly in pursuit of me and you that God is constantly wanting relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And he says this in verse uh, 18 and 19. He says, not counting their trespasses against them. I mean, in reality, the gospel is this, that God's like, you know what? I don't count your sins against you. There's nothing like, actually, if you've been around people who kind of count your mistakes. Well, that's the second time you did that to me, man. That's like the third time you actually left me hanging. Like, God's like, I don't count this against you. I'm not adding this up. I keep no record of wrong. I'm not counting their trespasses against you. Hey, let's just be honest here. The biggest issue in life is sin. Man's greatest need is forgiveness. God's greatest deed is forgiving. You know, the biggest issue in life that I have is this issue called sin. Uh, Isaiah says it this way. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He's basically saying the biggest issue people have in life is obviously this issue of sin. Now, I know we know that, but I don't know if we always talk about sin in this way of like, sin's biggest issue is where I want to be God. I put myself in the place of God. Sin could be defined as simply that, where you make yourself God, you serve yourself. Sin separates you from the true God, the one true God. Sin is our biggest issue. I love how Charles Spurgeon actually said this. He says, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. You and your sins must separate or you and your God can never come together. I can never have intimacy, relationship with God if there's this thing called sin. And the whole point is Jesus doesn't count that towards us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us, Psalm 103 says. This idea that God's like, I don't count this against you. You know, one of the truths I wanted to sit in, my, sit in this week with myself and I want to share with you guys is there's truly more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. There is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. I don't know if we always believe that. I feel like sometimes we think that there's more sin in me and there's less mercy in Jesus. There is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you and in me. Amen? I don't care what you maybe have been doing or have done or currently doing or we're planning on doing. There truly is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. He's not counting. He's not counting your trespasses, your sins against you. You see, this is why Paul says God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. So look at that last phrase. He says it twice, gave us the ministry of reconciliation and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. I want you to know this. Um, whether or not you work at a church or you consider yourself in ministry, you're in ministry, right? Everyone has the ministry of reconciliation, that like you are part of God's grand plan to reconcile the world to God. God has given you this ministry. This is your purpose, like whatever purpose it is you have, whatever job it is you have, whatever career it is you have, you have a lot of purposes, but your main purpose is to be a reconciler, to reconcile the world to God. If you've ever had a third party reconciler and they do it like really well, like maybe you're at odds with a family member, friend, whatever, and someone can like, hey guys, can we just meet together and like reconcile things? God's like, I've given you this ministry to reconcile the world to God. You've been reconciled, so therefore you're going to reconcile. I mean, this is the great purpose. And please, like, we don't want to miss this. I don't want to get distracted in life and miss the purpose of why I'm here, the ministry of reconciliation. 
you know, there's different purposes for everything. I mentioned uh, the, the Roomba thing last week that my wife got on Amazon Prime Day. Remember that? It's just funny because all week long, my two-year-old has been talking to Roomba like it's her doggy. She calls it her puppy. And so she's like, hey, puppy. Hi, puppy. So it's the cutest thing. Like all week long, I've seen her take a ball, look at the Roomba, and she throws it. It's like a really bad throw. It goes backwards always. She's like, she goes, fetch. And then the, the Roomba like go the wrong way. And she's like, no, no, puppy. And she yells at the Roomba. And I love it. It's the cutest thing. She treats the Roomba like her puppy. And me and Kim are like, I think we have to get our, our children a dog. Like we feel terrible. But like you're looking at her. She thinks the purpose of this thing is to be her puppy, right? She's missing the purpose of it. I had to find a way to just throw that in. I love this. What is our purpose? Our purpose, our purpose is this ministry of reconciliation. We can't miss the point. Why are we here? Why do we exist? To know God, to enjoy him forever, and to invite people into this process. Say, hey, you are not an enemy of God. God is pursuing you. God loves you. And we're going to invite people into this. I love how one author put it. His name is Gary Miller. He says, because of Jesus' work of reconciliation, his sin-bearing, righteousness-giving, relationship-restoring, work on the cross, and in his resurrection, we are people who relentlessly pursue gospel relationships, who are prepared to face pain and say hard things, and take the initiative over and over again to pursue things until they are right, because this is the way of the gospel. When most people will give up on a relationship and say, that's too difficult, they'll never learn, they'll never change. He goes, no, no, we're called over and over again to pursue a relationship, to pursue reconciliation. God has given us not just reconciliation to us, but reconciliation to God. Ultimate matters is their soul and God. God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. This is our ministry, not someone else's. Amen? Our ministry. Number two, what we're going to look at is our mission. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Paul goes on to say, therefore, in light of this ministry, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This verse just sticks with me. Paul's like, as if God was speaking through me right now, I beg you to be reconciled to God. That we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors of Christ, and we're begging you to be reconciled to God. Our, our mission is to have the world be reconciled to God. Now, I want to talk about this idea of ambassador, because uh, there, there's something about this that we have to see that I think even in Paul's mindset. Jesus in John 17 put it this way. In John 17, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He's like, I've been sent, and now you are being sent. We are ambassadors. I, I want to ask this, like, what if we actually believe this? What if you actually believe right now, like, one of your main identities and title was an ambassador of Christ? Like, think about this. Last week, we looked at identity. You are a new creation. That's just who you are. You are a new creation. Paul Paul then uses another identity term and says, you are an ambassador. We are ambassadors. What if we actually believe this? Like, what if we actually interacted with our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, like we are ambassadors from heaven to earth, trying to win people, trying to reconcile relationship. You know, what does Paul have in mind when he says we are ambassadors? You got to understand, in Paul's context, there was Roman ambassadors. Now, Rome had like a very unique empire. Rome had uh, different provinces. One was called a senatorial province, and one was an imperial province. And here's what Paul has in mind. Think about this. A senatorial province, an imperial province. A senatorial province, just so you kind of follow what I'm getting at, uh, was uh, basically an area that was ruled by Rome that was like obedient to Rome. 
They weren't fighting Rome. There wasn't insurrections. They weren't trying to stop things. They're like, you know what? We just embrace this fact that we're now Roman. Rome took over. Rome is in control. They kind of like humbly submitted a lot of times over to Rome. Then, uh, that was senator. Then you had these imperial provinces. These were more kind of areas that were like, we don't like that Rome's here, but they're just here. They would fight back. They would cause riots. They'd cause fighting. They would disturb the peace. They're like, we don't want the Roman people here. So they're constantly fight back. Now, Rome had to send ambassadors not to the senatorial province, but the imperial provinces. And the idea is Paul's like, they had to go to those provinces because that's where the issues were. Paul's saying, let's describe this, that you and I are ambassadors for Christ, to a very hostile environment, to the imperial province. So stay with me. There's a hostile group of people that was, we don't want the Roman presence here, and we're going to do everything we can to stop it. If we don't want God's presence here, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. And Paul's like, just like Rome sends out ambassadors into that province, so too you and I are sent out to those difficult, like maybe people or province or area that say, we don't want God. We don't want your Jesus. We don't want anything to do with this. So Paul uses this term to say, hey, listen, don't forget who you are here. You're an ambassador. Now, like, stay with me. We're going to talk really briefly, briefly. What is an ambassador's job and role? Like, what is our mission here? So here's the first thing. We'll just kind of lay it out here. Here's what an ambassador does. Uh, An ambassador must be a citizen of the nation he or she represents. Like, we know this, right? If you're going to be an ambassador to another nation or country, you have to be from that, 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 that area that's sending you. You have, to be from, you have to have citizenship of that area that sent you. Paul in Philippians 3.20 says, your citizenship is in heaven. I want us to get this. I love this idea. Like we do walking around with like an American passport, maybe a passport from a different country. Paul goes, hey, your passport, your true citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. You're an ambassador of heaven. Actually, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. Paul says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Like we, at one point in time, weren't citizens of heaven. We are actually a part of that imperial province, that, the province that was hostile towards God. And he goes, God has actually called us out of the domain of darkness into this now new kingdom. I want you to know this, that your true home is in heaven. Your true citizenship is in heaven that God says, this is who you are. An ambassador must be from there. Listen to this. An ambassador must be commissioned. An ambassador must be sent. I can't just go to China and be like, hey, China, hi, I'm Josiah. I'm an ambassador from America. I'm not, right? I'll actually do a lot more harm than good. You have to like formally be sent. And here's the idea. You are formally sent. God wants you to know that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me and I send you. Go make disciples. You have been formally sent. You are commissioned. That's what an ambassador does. They're formally sent. Number three is this. An ambassador uh, represents his ruler and his people. Know that you are not here to represent yourself. When Paul says you're an ambassador for Christ, you are not just representing yourself in that moment. You're on behalf of, you could say, your country and your king. And this idea of you are on behalf, you're representing God. You and I are wherever we go. Wherever we go. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.27, hey, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like you can't just say the right things. Your conduct, let it match that. Let your lifestyle. As followers of Jesus, our lifestyle has to match our beliefs. What we believe about God must be true in our actions. Like, I believe this way about Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus because you are ambassadors for Christ. This is part of the role of an ambassador. We'll keep going. An ambassador has all or her needs provided. 
When Paul says you're an ambassador, I just love this concept, and I love this, that God says, you know what, you're an ambassador. And ambassadors, whenever they're sent out, they do have their needs provided. That's why Paul in Philippians 4 says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. My God shall supply all of your need. There's something about being an ambassador. God's like, I'm going to meet your needs here. Don't worry. Don't forget. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. The idea is don't forget your main purpose. Don't forget why you're here. Number number five is this. An ambassador does not speak to please his audience, but the king who sends him. This is so important. You and I will not always please people by what we say, maybe even how we say it. We really have an audience of one. And an ambassador's job is not to please the audience, but the person that sent him. Like, I got to represent this message well. That's why Paul said in verse uh, 11 or 14, he says, we make it our aim to please God. This is our goal. And lastly, this, an ambassador has no right to manipulate or change the message given. Like, when it comes to the gospel message, I can't manipulate it. I can't change it. I can't tweak it. Know this. When Paul says, hey, your mission, you're an ambassador, we just have to fully represent it. I have no desire here to try to twist God's word to say something it's not saying. Ultimately, like I and you will give an account for our lives and our, our desire to say, here's what God's word says. Let's believe it. Let's believe into it. Let's live it out. Let's hold each other accountable to it. We will fall short. Yes. Thank you, God. We'll boast in the grace of Jesus. But in reality, we go, I'm not going to manipulate or change this book just to fit the cultural moment that we're in. We have to represent the gospel of Jesus the way the gospel of Jesus in- intends to be represented. Amen. That is our hope as ambassadors. We cannot manipulate or tweak it. The reason why I just want to walk through this with you guys is when Paul uses this term ambassador, there's so many times, I love this, do a study on just different identities in Christ, where it says you are God's priest, you are God's uh, lamb or sheep, you are an ambassador. There's all these different identity statements that are so beautiful, and one is that you are an ambassador, and think about all that means. Think about all that entails. That's how God views you. Now listen, I don't want to forget what he's saying at the end of verse 20. He says this, what? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Honestly, I can't really fathom this. Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul actually said, I'm a cursed man if I don't preach the gospel. This is one of the most unique verses to me because Paul's saying, I want you to understand that Christ is speaking through us in this moment, be reconciled to God. Like if, if God was here in a tangible form in some way, I want you to just think, what would God say? Like, I love you. I give my life for you. Like, be reconciled to me. And Paul is saying, you know, we're going to pick up on that. As if God was pleading through us, as if God was in me, but using me as a puppet and using my mouth, God would be saying this, I beg you, I implore you, be reconciled to God. And honestly, that's my plea today. You know what I love about Christianity? Um, we don't want to like hide our cards. We're not trying to be like, let's, we're going to like hide the sales and like try to go, oh, actually, we're trying to sell you this. No, no, we want you to believe in Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. We're not ashamed of that. We're not going to hide anything from that. We want you to know that Jesus loves you greatly and deeply and he gave his life for you. And we implore you, we beg you on behalf of God, please be reconciled to Christ. That's why next week in chapter 6, Paul's going to say, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day. We beg you. There's not guaranteed a tomorrow. So we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The best thing you and I could do is walk out of this room reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? By Jesus' blood, by what he's done. Did we pursue him? No, he pursued us. He, he made us a friend. We're one's enemies. Know that God right now in this moment is pursuing your heart and wants you to be reconciled to him. This is our mission, amen, that the world be reconciled to God. And here's the last thing. Here's our message, verse 21. Our message is this. Let's read verse 21. He says, For our sake, he made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The New King James says, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to break this down because, honestly, it was this verse when I was about 16 years old that absolutely changed the the whole trajectory of my life. When, again, the gospel became a freeing thing versus a burden. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or another way of saying it and putting it is this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though he lived my life, so that on this day, God treats me as though I lived his life. Let's think through that. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though he lived my life. His suffering, what he went through, God treated Jesus as though he lived my life. That's what I deserved. That was my sin on him. So that on this day, God treats me as though I lived Jesus's life. God sees Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. God treats me as his son, adopted, because Christ's righteousness placed on me. Let's actually just break down this phrase. Uh, Jesus, he says, who knew no sin. We got to understand this. Jesus never sinned. He did not have a sin nature. He never had a lustful thought. He never said a word that he should have said. He never did something he didn't say. I know we like know this, but do we know this? Jesus had no sin. Actually, that's why the Bible, and Peter talks about this, he was the lamb without blemish or without spot. First Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish mission without spot. Yeah, you know, you know this, but uh, in the Old Testament, if you were to bring a lamb or a goat before the priest to sacrifice, or maybe on Yom Kippur, they would sacrifice one sheep for the whole nation. That lamb had to be without blemish, without spot, had to be pure, had to be just pure white, pure beautiful in that sense, no spot. Why? It was just more of a physical thing to represent. We want people, we want people to know that they are completely washed and saved by the blood of Jesus. The idea was there's no sin in this lamb lamb. There's no spot, no blemish. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no spot. There's no blemish. He's that perfect lamb of God. See, Jesus knew no sin. He never sinned. And I know we like have heard this, but do we get that? I mean, from infant to adulthood, never sinned. That's just who he is. He's fully God and fully man. The fully God in him, no sin nature. And Adam all die, but, but Jesus wasn't from Adam. He didn't have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. So he didn't have in Adam all die because he doesn't come from Adam. He has no sin nature in him. Fully God, fully man. But he says, who knew no sin to become sin. So he made him Jesus to be sin. Again, it's not that Jesus started sinning. It's not that he had sin nature, but he placed on him the sin of the world to be sin. It's crazy that the sinless one obviously took on sin in a moment of time. Actually, uh, Paul in Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for his written curses, everyone who hangs on a tree. Say with me. There's a, a passage in Deuteronomy that says, hey, if anyone ever hangs on a tree, they're a cursed person. Like, you should not, be, you should not hang on a tree and not die that way. Christ hung on a tree. Christ became a curse. By becoming a curse, he removed the curse of the garden. He took on the curse of man, he became a curse, and therefore he removed the curse. He knew no sin, but he became sin. He took on sin, that he might free us from this curse of the law. So he knew no sin, he took on sin, and it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Stay with me. This is what you call imputation. 
Here's the idea. The biblical idea of imputation is this. Imputation just means to put on one's account. So how great would it be if you are negative $50,000 in debt or negative whatever, not only do you go to neutral, but you've got like an infinity max in your, your bank account. Like one day it's just like, just this one with a million zeros that just keeps going on and on. You go, what is that? See, he goes, you not were like at neutral with God. You had a debt you could never pay. I mean, it's a debt you could never pay. But Christ's righteousness was imputed. It was given to your accounts. This idea that, like, not are you back to neutral, but then some, but more. But you'll never be poor or broke again. I want you to get this idea of imputation because I think it's so beautiful. The book of Philemon, the little book of Philemon, if you've ever seen that little book called Philemon, it's all about the doctrine of imputation. Paul says in Philemon verse 1, or chapter 1, only chapter, verse 17, Paul says uh, to Philemon, He says, receive him, this guy named Onesimus, as you would me. And if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Onesimus stole from his master, flees, goes to Rome. Onesimus runs into Paul. I love this story because he runs into Paul, gets saved. He's like, oh my gosh, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Paul's like, tell me more of your story. He goes, well, I actually stole from my master and I left him. He goes, you need to go back to your master. Like, you got to go back. That doesn't mean like just that you're forgiven that you don't have to like now make up for those wrongs. Like, no, go back to your master and just say, hey, will you show mercy on me? Actually, I know your master. I know Philemon. And he's like, I'm going to give you this letter. Paul sends Onesimus with this letter and Paul's very words to him that. He goes, receive him as you would me. Receive him as you would me. Whatever he owes you, put that on my account. Philemon, you owe me. You're saved because of me. Like, I led you to Christ. Whatever this guy owes you, put that on my account. This is the gospel of Jesus. It's like, whatever these people owe you, God, hey, put that on my account. Hey, Father, receive them as you would me. You see, imputation is that. The Father receives you as he would receive his son, Jesus. The Father doesn't, again, receive you for who you are and who I am. God receives you as he would his own son. He says, put that on my account. Yes, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He put your sin, my sin, my debt, your debt on his account. This is the gospel. Like, I know that these are words maybe we can just like hear and doesn't mean much, but I really hope you get this. Do we really get that your debt, your sin, all the things you and I have ever done have been placed on Christ? Like that was imputed to him and then his righteousness was imputed to me. One author simply put it this way. He goes, Adam's sin imputed to us our sin imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Do we get it? Adam's sin, man, that's on us. Our sin, that's on Christ. Christ's righteousness, that's on us. This wonderful doctrine of putting it on someone's account. This is what he says. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love how Charles Spurgeon again said this. He says, the righteousness which Adam had in the garden was perfect, but... It was the righteousness of man. Ours is the righteousness of God. What Adam had, yes, you could say he was sinless, but he had the righteousness of man. We don't have Adam's righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness on us. Listen, church, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to have Christ's righteousness placed on you. You know, the gospel of Jesus is so much more than you're forgiven. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful. There's not, if you've ever wronged someone and they say, you know what, I forgive you. You're like, wow, thank you. I did not deserve that. The gospel is not just you're forgiven. The gospel is not only are you forgiven, you're not back at neutral, but now you have Christ's righteousness placed on you. Now you have, you're robed, you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God, again, he sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus in you. 
This for me was just incredibly freeing. When you're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to like really believe this? When I understood that the gospel, listen, the gospel is not a matter of subtraction or addition, but it's a matter of substitution. This changed everything for me. The gospel is not a matter of get rid of these things out of your life, subtraction or addition, start doing these things, though these things are important at times, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is a matter of substitution. The gospel is not stop doing and start doing. The gospel is Jesus did. And when you really rest in that, when you really find that, you go, thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. That's why Paul says, I'm going to boast in the grace of God. Like, I am what I am, but that's by the grace of God that is in me. If there's anything good in my life, that's the grace of God. Listen, think about imputation, reconciliation, substitution. God pursued us. God reconciled with us. God imparted his righteousness to us. God took our place, switched places with us. This is the gospel. It's so much better. I love that we're forgiven, but it's even better than you're forgiven. Is that you have Christ's righteousness now placed on you. You know, you do think about this. doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't, our human mind, I try to like, it doesn't make sense. Because if you and I did something, let's just say we truly owed a debt. Someone sues us. They take us to court. And we go, we just can't pay. I can't pay the funds. It's not like the judge just bangs his gavel and says, you know what? This is like tens of millions of dollars. There's no way you'll overpay this. So you know what? I'm just going to bang my gavel and say, innocent, and you're back to neutral. No, it's the judge saying, not only are you innocent, but let me give you hundreds of millions of dollars on top of that. You're like, well, why would you do that? Because I'm just a really good judge. Like, that is, like we don't get the gospel of grace. It does not make sense to us. Because it would be nice enough to know that my sins are forgiven. That, that's great. It'd be nice to know this debt I could never pay. I'm just back to innocent. But it's not that. It's something that goes far beyond us. Like, we fight this as just people. I understand why the gospel is so difficult, because we fight this. Like, is this true? Is it too good to be true? Like, we fight this. But this is the gospel. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That Christ's righteousness is placed on you. This is the greatest news ever given. And I think our soul and our spirit are just prone to fight this. And I'd say this, don't fight this anymore. Boast in the finished work of the cross. Listen, when Jesus knew no sin and he became sin, I want you to think about this. The things you did in your teenage years, in high school, in college, currently, your adult life, the greed you've had, the lust you've had, the things you've done, the things that you've done in secret no one knows of. Do you not understand that Jesus became that? Jesus took that? You know that Jesus' 33 years of sinless life placed on you? I mean, this is so different than, again, just you're free and you're forgiven. This is the junk was placed on him and his righteousness placed on you. This is the great exchange. This is the wonderful exchange. This is the great switcheroo. This is why we're the exchange because this is the gospel and a word. It's what God did for us that we could never do for ourselves. He paid my debts. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. This is the gospel of Jesus. Amen? You know what I want to do? I just want to enjoy this. Can I tell you, you know that church isn't always about come to church and now let's start doing new things. Sometimes it's about just receiving what Jesus Christ has done for you already and just thanking him and enjoying him and celebrating him. So you know what? On this fourth, we're just going to hold up our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And we're going to celebrate the fact that we now have Christ's righteous place on us because of what he's done. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though he lived my life so that on this day, God treats me as though I lived Jesus' life. Thank you, Jesus, for this grace. Amen? Let's just pray and worship our Lord. Father, we just want to thank you. We are incredibly humbled by that truth. We thank you so much for the cross. Help us never take this for granted forget this, downplay this, say we've heard this before. Jesus, I pray that this good news would not become old news. God, I ask that it just always be fresh. It would be good. 
that God, even right now, this, this, this Sunday morning, this day we even just celebrate freedom, we thank you for this freedom that we have in you that far surpasses any other freedom man could give us because, God, you have given us this freedom found in you, Jesus. God, I just ask for anyone in this room who does not yet know you, does not yet believe in you, trust in you, God, that I beg that they would be reconciled to you, that you right now, as we worship, as we sing, you pursue their heart, you pursue their mind, you pursue their whole person, that, God, they would know that there's a God who has not declared war on them, but you've declared peace. And we thank you for this peace through your son, Jesus. We love you. We need you. We want to worship you now in your precious name. Amen.